Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. My guest today is Matthew Ristol, has written... When Moctezuma met Cortes, and this week we're going to talk about the Conquistadors. But of course, as always, I'll begin asking, how did you begin to study South American history in the first place? Yes, that's a good question. I get asked that often because um, I was born and grew up mostly in England. And so people say, why are you studying Mexico? Why are you studying Latin America? How did that come about? Um, I actually spent a good part of my childhood in Spain and then in South America, in Venezuela and in Caracas. Um, and my stepmother has been my my stepmother now for half a century as Venezuelan. So I have more of a connection to, to Latin America than, than may at first be obvious. And so that was the that was the first part of it is that I was... Uh, interested in Latin American history um, because of my sort of personal connection. And as a schoolboy in England, so I was educated entirely in England, um, I didn't get much of that. There was not so much interest in that, right? Mm. Um, you know, the English tends and, to be... And still, in, it is very little, you know, very books little and study. works on South American history and especially ancient empires of uh, yeah. South America. And it's hard to find and it's it's such a shame because it's such a fascinating topic. Yeah, you're right, Ireland. And I, I think it's a lot to do with the history of empire um, that the, the the English or perhaps I should say the British are interested in um, parts of the world where the British empire was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this, that means that, you know, the Aztecs and, and Latin Americans and, and so on gets kind of left out a little bit. Um, but then the second half of the sort of the answer to your question is that when I was an undergraduate in England, I did um, a- attend some lectures by um, a scholar who then was a, was a sort of a young um, scholar fairly early in his career, Felipe Fernandez Armesto, um, who is of Spanish descent, as you could tell by his name, but is in fact very English. Um, and he has gone on to write uh, an amazing set of books, as I would say, one of sort of the great historians um, um, in, in speaking, in, in writing in any language of his of his generation. And I was fascinated by his lectures on the Aztecs and Spanish conquistadors. And I thought, oh, OK, here is what I've been missing. Here's a kind of a part of the story that I haven't been been learning about. And that that kind of planted a seed um, that led me to traveling in Mexico um, when I was still an undergraduate as much as I could. And then when I graduated, um, I traveled extensively as much as I could again in Mexico and Central America. And I, and I, and I was kind of hooked at that point, right. That, that actually going there and seeing evidence um, of the cultures and civilizations that had, had been there before seeing evidence on the ground, 
um, that was kind of an incredible experience for me. I don't know how many people listening have been able to do that, but you, you know, you stand in a, in a, in a city square, whether it's a Mexico city today or a small Maya village, um, either way you look around you and there is, let's say in the small Maya village, there'll be the remnants of a thousand year old pyramid. And then the remnants of a 16th century church and maybe a 19th century government building. Well, in Mexico city, you stand in that central plaza in Mexico city, the Zocalo, and there you can see the archaeological um, um, projects there for the great Aztec Templo Mayor, the big temple of the Aztecs. There's the 16th century cathedral. There's the, the 18th century version. There's the palaces that were built in the colonial period by the Spaniards. So you've got Mexican history or Maya history or wherever we are in, in, in Latin America right there all in front of you. And that that really absolutely fascinated me and i and i think kind of compelled me to to try to uh to write about those things and see if i could actually um make a living doing it which was a, kind of an amazing and privileged thing to be able to do Ooh. so of course that's really in some background and then and what were better to start with the so-called discovery of the new world oh yes right and you what the listener couldn't see is that when when Arlen said discovery he did little kind of scare scare quotes right in the mm -hmm. air which it's just that in and of itself um kind of opens up a whole line of com of conversation <laughs> about why we why we do that now um so you know obviously for for hundreds of years um our way of looking at that was very much eurocentric right it's like in the wake of columbus's first voyage of 1492 1493 um, in the wake of that, the way in which we saw um, American, the history of the Americas was all about everything that began in 1492. And that was kind of this big kind of dividing line. Um, but scholarship has come a long way in the last 50 years. I mean, very dramatically. And there's entire fields of study looking at um Indigenous history, Native American history, sometimes called ethno history. Mm. I think that's probably a phrase that um, is will be outdated before too long. But um, and that has helped us to kind of see that this was a mutual discovery, right? It was the beginning of Europeans discovering uh, Indigenous Americans and Indigenous Americans discovering discovering Europeans. So um, even though this is this is five hundred year old history, in many ways it's fresh, it's new. Um, all of these fields, whether we're talking about the so-called discovery of the Americas, the Columbus era, whether we're talking about conquistadors, as I, I think you want to focus on in a minute, yeah. the Latin America, Aztecs, Incas, and so on. Um, this is really right now is a very kind of exciting moment to be studying all of these things. I think the field is kind of um, exploding. I don't know. I wanted to talk before we go into the conquistadors as well. I want to talk about a little bit background on the Aztecs as well, and how the their world before, of course, we're going to go talk about Cortes in a second. But I want a little bit background information on the Aztecs as well, of course, before we begin on the conquistadors. Yeah, and and that kind of is a good segue from what I was just saying in in terms of how our opinions and views and perspectives are changing very rapidly right now. Mm. So there's a huge disconnect at the moment between what 
Aztec scholars um, understand of, of the Aztec past and the popular perception. Um, and it now has been um, a couple of generations that Aztec scholars have been um, arguing that the traditional view of the Aztecs as being kind of bloodthirsty, a civilization centered on human sacrifice, um, that they were kind of violent and so on, that that, that kind of popular perception um, is not just wrong, but is profoundly racist and neo-colonialist in the sense that it was created by the Spaniards. It was created by conquistadors, Franciscan friars, and so on in the 16th century, quite deliberately as part of an imperial agenda to justify their conquest. Um, to say, look, we, you know, we're not just pirates came in and just stole mm. somebody's country. That these, these were people who were um, suffering under uh, an evil regime and a satanic religion and we came in and saved them right that this was sort of we were we had a civilizing mission well you know we can unpack that and talk about that in the 16th century um, and kind of better understand how that could happen without you know being overly judgmental of Spaniards or Aztecs and so on that's that's one thing but it's something else for that perspective to still be overwhelmingly predominant in the world 500 years later. So that's kind of, that's, I think, is the amazing thing and the fascinating stories. How is it that we still see the Aztecs mm. in this way? And how great is the contrast between that perspective and what the Aztecs were really like? Mm. And we talked about this off camera, but I mean, as Simon C. But Montefiore in his new book, The World, argues that the Aztecs weren't really more brutal than what the, Euro the Europeans were at the time. Yeah. Um, that that passage in his book, which he shared that with me um, before the book was published, and I shared with him my opinion on that. And, <laughs> I, and I said, you know, I have a very strong opinion. I think it's really important to um, say exactly what you said, you know, how you characterized it. And... Um, I had no idea whether he would um, take that seriously or not. So I was happy to see that he thought that that was a persuasive idea and that, that, that does appear in the book. Um, and it's important because it's, you know, a book like that reaches a larger audience mm -hmm. of people who are not necessarily going to read books about Aztecs and conquistadors. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and even if it's just a few sentences, it helps to kind of cause them to pause and think, Oh, I maybe that's wrong. Maybe everything that I see, you know, on the internet and video games, on te television, bad television documentaries, uh, you know, the things I saw in my high school textbook, whatever, wherever it is that people are getting information, causes them to question as to whether that maybe is is wrong. So, the one way to approach that is to say, "Hang on a minute, let's compare what we know about the Aztecs to what we know about European." society and culture at the same time in the 15th and 16th century. And I think once we do that very quickly, we run up against this phrase, human sacrifice and begin to understand how problematic it is. The human sacrifice is a phrase traditionally used to describe Aztec ritual executions. However, Europeans were ritually executing each other um, to an equal and I would argue greater degree during the same period. And they were doing it for very similar reasons that a combination of religious and political reasons. But we, we don't uh, sacrifice. 
where the you know they're crucifying for people as well at that point in time. If I, if I remember correctly from that passage that Montefiore writes about that the crucifixions were still kind of a thing. Um, I mean, I'm I you know I'm thinking of burning people alive at the stake, yeah. right? So you, often, if you talk to, I mean, I teach in the United States, right? So I'm thinking about American audiences, American mm. undergraduates or public audiences, and you ask people, 16th century Europe, tell me what what association you have that is positive to do with culture and civilization, mm. and and it's not long before people bring up Shakespeare. Yeah. Right. So now we've got Elizabethan England in their mind as being kind of this this high point of, of civilization and a civilization that they think of as being one that is an antecedent to ours, that somehow kind of modern Western civilization descends in part from, you know, from Shakespeare. It's like, it's, you know, everybody learns about Shakespeare in school. It's a reference, even whether you're growing up in England or in Norway. Right. You know about Shakespeare. So then I say, OK, but. Also, in that same place and time, people were being tortured, often publicly, systematically, ritually, and then sometimes burned alive at the stake publicly Mm. for religious and political reasons. And they weren't even people who were of a different religion. This is a a division within the same religion. Mm. So it isn't, you know... Christians, Jews, Muslims, like burning each other because they are the wrong religion in their mind. It's people within Christianity, Protestants and Catholics. How can that not be human sacrifice Mm. if the Aztecs ritually executing people for political, religious reasons, right? It's war captives, criminals, and so on. We got two different categories that make one in our minds somehow acceptable. Well, there were political reasons, blah, blah, blah. And then the other one is is used as a way to completely denigrate an entire civilization. So I think the, the phrase human sacrifice um, is hugely problematic and has to be thrown out. I mean, if you like, you know, we were doing discovery with invisible scare quotes. Yeah. Uh, you can put <laughs> human sacrifice in invisible scare quotes, but, you know, that's kind of a, a, a really sh- a shortcut way to doing what we really should be doing, which is unpacking these phrases and understanding how they came to be used and what is, what is wrong with them. Now I'll keep rambling on for a few seconds if I can, or a few yeah, minutes. Of course. Ellen, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned Shakespeare. Well, um, if we go back to the Aztecs in the 15th, obviously the Aztecs don't exist at the same time as Shakespeare, but we're loosely we're talking about 15th, 16th century, right? Um, the Aztecs had an incredibly well-developed uh, culture of art, architecture, theater, mm-hmm. song, dance, literature, like all of the things that we might associate with positively with Elizabethan England, the Aztecs had their own equivalent. And in no way is this kind of inferior, right? To see that as um, well, that's all very well, you know, for, you know, a bunch of natives or savages or so on. That is absolute, you know, kind of colonialist racism that that we we try to be objective and, and go kind of go through our checklist of, of elements of culture and civilization. Your mind is going to be blown. You're going to realize, oh, wow, this was an absolutely fascinating, fully developed, deeply rooted culture and civilization that predated the political arrangement that we call the Aztecs goes back many, many hundreds of years through 
what in Europe is the medieval period um, and those exact same centuries in in, in central Mexico. Mm. So, of course, let's begin with Cortes and have it in the background and, he, and how he ended up in Cuba as a governor and eventually sailed into Mexico to conquer the, and found the Aztec Empire there. Right. So rethinking the Aztecs then begs the question, what about the Spanish conquistadors? Does that mm. does thinking differently about the Aztecs force us to think differently about the Spanish conquistadors? And I think it, it very much does, because the traditional story of the conquest of Mexico um, is based on mm. the, the way that the Spaniards told that story. Um, and Cortes who I would argue is not, you know, the brilliant strategist and brilliant general and so on that he's he's made out to be. But what he really is good at is PR. He's really good at self-promotion. Um, this is a guy who, you know, never really achieved anything of great success on his own. I would argue that the conquest of Mexico is a, is a is first of all I think that phrase should be in scare quotes but the Spanish invasion of the Aztec empire was far more complicated than just a military enterprise led by them it's led by him we'll get to what what it really was in a, in a minute um but what he was really good was a, it was self promotion that's how he managed to get himself into that position and where he got all of that credit and partly why how he did that was by writing a series of reports back to um back to Spain, back sent back to the crown, which he then had published. And those reports were pieces of pure propaganda. They placed him at the center of affairs, they made him look like he was in control, um, events were distorted, things were made up, and so on. However, that that story, because those were published. And they were readily available. They were, you know, you didn't have to hunt down manuscripts. It wasn't like um, contrary narratives that some of which were in manuscript form for hundreds of years and no one read, right? Those were available. And therefore, the Cortez view of things is repeated in print in multiple languages for hundreds of years, all through the 16th, 17th, you know, 19th century. So you got an increasing pile of books that don't say, you know, the conquest of Mexico, according to Cortes, they build themselves as, you know, the conquest, the Spanish conquest, what really happened? Um, but they're basically following the Cortes view of things. Um, so I think that's the first that's the first challenge that we have is to try to see around Cortes to kind of somehow remove him from from the center of the picture. It's really hard to do. Um, you know, I wrote a book that was trying to do that. But look, the book is called When Montezuma Met Cortez. You just mentioned it. And there's a guy got Cortez. His name is in the title of the book. He's on the, his, his picture is on the cover. He's mentioned all the way through. So you can see, even in my attempt to write a history <laughs> that doesn't place him at the center, um, I, you know, I struggle with that because he's kind of, he's kind of everywhere. Mm. Um, Go on. Yeah, no, uh, I, that, you know, but it wasn't the when Cortes came to Mexico. He wasn't really allowed to go further in, was he? He was, uh, it was illegal. It was basically Caesar's conquest of Gaul in the sense that you know it, it was illegal in eyes of Rome that he wasn't supposed to. But and the same with Cortes, he wasn't allowed. He was denied to go into 
Mexico as well. Mm-hmm. So how did it manage to get its way through through this through this without you know you know legal per- precautions? Because right. it does manage to find a way through. Yes. This. Yes, that does require um, a little bit of explanation. I mean, first of all, like, why is it? How is that as a concept as illegal? You know, this on the surface of it, these are expeditions of Spaniards who were just engaging in um, outright plunder. And most of these expeditions are slaving expeditions. Um, uh, Almost all Spanish expeditions of exploration um, or conquest, whatever you want to call them during this period, beginning with Columbus, um, were slaving expeditions. Um, uh, which is a, an aspect of the story that, of course, the Spaniards play down and is not in the traditional narrative. Ask someone about, you know, the, the conquest of Mexico and then and then ask them about slavery and they're going to assume you're talking about um, uh, enslaved Africans. We're not talking about enslaved Africans, we're talking about enslaved indigenous people um, who were enslaved in mass quantities, tens, hundreds of thousands, uh, shipped back to Spain and, and ended up in the slaving markets and all through the Iberian Peninsula and beyond, moved around what become Latin American provinces and so on. So um, uh, why am I talking about slavery? It's just a really important part of the story that I want to make sure doesn't get left out. But also, it's illegal. (laughs) So how is it that Spaniards are enslaving so many indigenous peoples that that really is kind of the motor that is driving... um, the colonial economy as in its early days there just in the Caribbean. And yet it's illegal. There's a series of laws passed to make it illegal, most most notably in 1504. So, you know, Columbus first voyage, 1492, um, right? Uh, he dies in 1506. So even before Columbus's death, um, the Spanish invasion of Mexico is 1519. So we've got really early here is a very specific, explicit law saying it is not legal to enslave indigenous peoples. Um, However, there's a loophole. And the loophole is if they're rebels, if they have been given a chance to accept Spanish sovereignty, to convert to Christianity, um, particularly if they have appeared to have done so, then they change their minds and revolt, then, then they can be enslaved, but they are then revolting against the crown. And so therefore they should be considered to be slaves of the crown and they have to be branded as such and that and the, the, they can be sold, but there has to be tax paid to the crown and so on. Well, Spaniards use that loophole to enslave thousands and thousands. It's the same with the licenses that the, that the, that the crown grants to people to, um, to settle. So this is an attempt here by the Crown to control a process that they really have very little control over. So what the Crown says is um, you can't go and enslave people unless blah, 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 blah. You can't go to find some new land and just do what you like there. You can't just go in and settle and colonize and plunder without a license. What's the purpose of the license? The purpose of the license is for the Crown to be able to get their piece of the pie, right? So that they know what's going on so that they can um, control the appointment of political positions and they can collect taxes and so on. Who has the license for these new lands that we now think of as Mexico? The governor of Cuba, um, whose name is Diego Velasquez, because Cuba is the most recent significant territory in the Americas that the Spaniards have managed to um, 
invade and establish a settlement on. So he he has the license and he's sending other Spaniards to explore the coast to figure out what's there. So he can then go over and make the settlement and conquer. And he sends three in a row. Um, first one sort of fails. Second one fails. Person in charge is wounded actually by a battle on the beaches of Yucatan. Um, the Spaniards are defeated by a Maya army. Um, they sail back to Cuba and the leader of the expedition dies from his wounds and so on. So the expedition led by Cortez is the third one. Cortez is supposed to explore and then report back. Mm. He doesn't do that because they he realizes, or I would say they, so there's a group of about a dozen Spanish captains, right? That's the only rank. This isn't an army. This isn't a formal army. They don't all have ranks. There are there are those with the position of of, of captain, and then there's everybody else. But um, those are Spaniards who are in charge. As a group, they decide if they just report back to the governor of Cuba, they're going to miss out. They want to press on and see if they can um, acquire booty in the form of precious Ooh. metals. If they can, if, if they find there's a source of gold, for example, and to, to make catch slaves and maybe even claim a territory. They want to claim it for themselves. How do they do that? They have to somehow get that license away from the governor of Cuba. And the license has to be held by one individual. So they decide that because the governor of Cuba put Cortez in charge of this expedition, he's the best person. He's the person the king is most likely to grant the license to. I so want they... to observe you for just a few seconds. Absolutely. And I don't know if this is historical propaganda or not, or it is you know uh, in defense of Charles V who was the king of Spain at the time but if if I know correct remember correctly didn't he write out a letter that you should treat the indigenous people decently and not enslave the indigenous people and uh, if I don't know if this is quality historical propaganda no not, that, but, that's, a, know, that's that's as, real. We, as, we, as we know that it wasn't very well followed. It was not. And that's real. And I think so, you know, Isabel, Queen Isabel, you know, she passed that. She makes the original law as Queen of Castile in 1504. Charles um, says the same thing repeatedly um, when his son, uh, Philip, becomes the King, King Philip II. Um, he alleged he supposedly is surprised to discover that there are still thousands of indigenous peoples who are slaves in Spain, in his own kingdoms. They're enslaved indigenous people, um, you know, who who were taken as children. Um, a, a lot of them were young girls, you know, 11, 12, 13, were taken, enslaved, taken out of their villages in, to some extent, in the Caribbean, but by that point, mostly in what we think of as Mexico, Central America, Um they're taken as, as, as sex slaves and then they become domestic slaves. They're shipped across to Spain and sold multiple times in Spain. And then decades later, they are, you know, Spanish speaking, um, enslaved peoples living in people's households in mm. Seville and so on. And he supposedly is shocked to discover all these people exist. And he says, that's wrong. Um, you know, my father, my, uh, you know, my great grandmother and so on, like all had banned that. They all said that that was illegal. 
so this should not be this should not be allowed. They should all be freed. And there's a big in, in investigation and so on, because, you know, what happens is all the people who own slaves hire lawyers. The whole thing gets tied up in litigation. Uh, it's it's happening in Spain and in Mexico and a tiny percentage of these enslaved peoples in Mexico and in Spain end up being freed. So yes, Ireland, the Spanish monarchs all through the 16th century are expressing um, their opposition to the enslavement of indigenous peoples. Uh, We can, to some extent, credit the Dominican friar Bartolome de las Casas, who has a great deal of influence at court, who lives almost through the entire 16th century, um, with convincing them that this that it is morally wrong. But we could be a little bit cynical about this too, and point out that um, the wealth and the survival of Spain's colonial provinces in the Americas is entirely dependent on indigenous peoples. Mm. on their labor, not their enslaved forced labor, but on their um, prosperous um, free communities. Mm. And that, that, that it helps us to better understand the Spanish enterprise of, of, of colonization in the Americas to see that we are talking about a tiny number of Spaniards Mm. who supposedly create vast colonies and subjugate millions and millions of indigenous peoples. That makes no sense. Just in terms of sheer numbers, how is that possible? They do not have the kind of levels of whatever, military superiority, civilizational superiority. They don't have that. So how are they able to do it? They're not. It's indigenous peoples are creating these provinces themselves. It's it's, it's a very complex process of negotiation between Spanish settlers and indigenous elites to, to create colonies in which indigenous peoples are still speaking their own languages, um, preserving their own cultures that have evolved and are now Christian cultures, but not the same Christianity as in Spain. Um, uh, self-governing, right, at, at all of the local levels, um, living in peace, <laughs> uh, that are then paying taxes, they're paying tribute, um, they're performing labor and the, the produce of their labor, part of that works its way up the chain, like the taxes um, in this kind of pyramid system into the capitals of the of Spanish provinces and then back out to Spain. So this system only works if indigenous peoples mm-hmm. are relatively free to govern themselves and live their own lives enslaving them goes absolutely diametrically opposed to that you destroy their communities you destroy their families destroy their communities it may be a way for spaniards to make money in the short run but the crown and crown officials and church officials and so on can see that in the long run it's absolutely disastrous and you you just if you destroy indigenous communities you destroy the possibility for us for colonies there can be no colonies spaniards are looking to build colonies on indigenous communities that's why the two big colonies are in Peru and Mexico, built on what were this is the Aztec and Spanish Aztec and Inca empires. So, um, to be cynical, this is a very long answer to your question, but to be cynical, <laughs> Spanish, Spanish Spanish monarchs are opposed to indigenous slavery, not just for on moral grounds, but also they can see and ha- has been explained to them by their by their counselors and officials in Spain that economically. 
that is not a viable policy and it ultimately would destroy the colonies. I do remember you talking about um, the slaves in Spain hiring lawyers, and I remember how Caroline Cannot wrote about it. There were very few, but there were cases where they actually succeeded, but there were a few cases where mm-hmm. they actually won their freedom thanks to hiring yeah. a lawyer. Yeah. Yep. Um Caroline Pennock um does write about that in her in her new book. Um what's it called? Forgotten Shores? Oh on, on Savage Shores it's called. On Savage Shores, yes. Yeah. Sorry. We'll make sure we get that get that right, <laughs> Caroline. Um great book um on Savage Shores and before her there was she draws upon a number of, of works by other scholars. She sort of pulls together um a lot of work that other people have done on very on sort of pieces of the story, right? I mean, I think yep. she's the first person to kind of pull all those pieces together to kind of create that larger story. Um, but with, with respect to what's happening in Spain in the 16th century and what you were talking about, Erlen, um, there's a scholar called Nancy Van Dusen mm. who teaches in Canada, um, and she had written a book called Global Indios. You can tell by the title, it's a far more scholarly book. Um you know, on savage shores is clearly a book aimed at a larger audience is more more yeah. of a readable book but nancy van dusen you know she did the work uncovering those those lawsuits that are still in the um archives in spain um, um and and was really the first person to uh to show how many people were in that category how many enslaved indigenous peoples there still were alive and what their struggle were and and the 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 ones who were able to achieve eventually get some freedom those who weren't and so on so we, we derailed a little bit there but let's go back to what, of course when the Montezuma, sorry when cortez arrives in mexico yeah. on the on the beaches there and the, the Aztecs discovered these and as of course popular propaganda has it they thought mm-hmm. they were gods but of course that is that's not true they did not think that they were gods but uh, they, they do seem to get accept, not necessarily accepted but they do get invited to Montezuma's court at first to see if they can establish diplomatic relations with new arrivals this, that arrived on the beach of Mexico Yes, the the Aztecs are following the Spaniards. Montezuma has he he knows hit the ships have been seen sailing along the coast. So before the Spaniards even land on the coast of what they then call and what we now know as Veracruz on the Gulf Coast of Mexico. But even before the landing, the Aztecs know about the Spaniards. Um, they have you know pictures that have been drawn of them and what they look like, and they have reports about them and so on. So um, they're not as sort of surprised and and shocked as the Spaniards yeah. imagine. They certainly don't see them as gods. Um, you know, again, rethinking Aztec civilization, understanding who the Aztecs were, um, you, you, some of these other kind of myths and misconceptions and bits of propaganda by the Spaniards just collapse immediately, just like that one, the idea yeah. that they thought the Spaniards were gods. Um, and in the story after that, you know, to kind of strip it down, that to its basic elements, um, the traditional narrative has Cortes, brilliant general, Montezuma, you know, uh, superstitious, um, uh, undermined by his own kind of belief that the Spaniards are gods. And there's this whole made up story about 
um, an, an ancient Aztec god called Quetzalcoatl, the feathered serpent, and he thinks Cortez is this god returned and so on. It's all it's all nonsense. It's not true at all. That's not what Montezuma is thinking. But in the traditional narrative, you've got this great general um, and this uh, sort of failing emperor and that helps to explain why just a few hundred Spaniards are able to march into the center of an empire of tens of millions of people and, you know, and, and achieve kind of a conquest. Well, um, that's not actually what happens. So what, what actually happens is um, you've got a very unstable alliance of Spanish captains. There's a group of Spanish captains that they have chosen Cortes to be their their leader, but they're not going to follow him necessarily. He's not actually in charge. They all have their own ideas of what it is they want to do. And so there's this kind of uneasy alliance proceeding over the next um, two and a half years, during which um, 3,000 Spaniards arrive in Mexico. So throw out right right away, throw out this idea of, you know, these sort of four or 500 who march in and conquer the empire and throw out another bit of nonsense that is later made up about Cortes burning all the ships so the Spaniards can't return. There's constant travel to and from between Mexico, Cuba, um, Santo Domingo or Hispaniola, what today is the island where Haiti and the Dominican Republic are, right? And even back to Spain. So Spaniards coming back and forth the whole time. Um, as I said, 3,000 come over. Most of them die in the war. So at the very end of the two and a half year war, there are about a thousand Spaniards in, in central Mexico. Um, a tiny percentage of those are, are the you know survivors from that original landing. Um, so right there, you can see this is a more complicated and messy um, uh, war of invasion than, than, than you've been led to believe, right? On the kind of the Cortez side of things. The other side of it that that undoes our, our view is the idea that um, all of the Aztec um, leaders and everybody else in Mexico is just kind of passively responding to what happens um, and that Cortez is able just to one by one convince everybody to come over to his side. In fact, um, there's a there's a, a complex struggle for power that has been going on in central Mexico um, on multiple levels. And the first one is there's a city state called Tlaxcala that has not been conquered and by the Mexica in Tenochtitlan is not part of the Aztec Empire. Um, so they are a kind of an independent player. Um, and their relationship, the Tlaxcala relationship with a couple of other city states nearby one of called one is called cholula um and cholula has been kind of switching sides back and forth between the aztecs and the clash Collins. <laughs> so in that valley there's a complex history that is going to be disturbed and upended and then in the central valley the, the where the lake is the lake texcoco um the heartland of the aztec empire um there are three cities the two that are most important to mention is the Mexica or Aztec capital of Tenochtitlan, which is on an island in the middle of the lake. That's now the center of Mexico City today. And then across the lake, this is the second city, Texcoco. It's just, this, just as big as Tenochtitlan, um, almost as important, 
people in Texcoco would would argue it's just as important. Um, you know, these are not different peoples, right? They're the same peoples. They're ethnically the same. Um, you got family members, brothers and cousins and sisters and so on live on different sides of the lake in these two different cities. Um, but there's a little bit of a kind of a power struggle between the two cities. And uh, Tenochtitlan is the number one city because four times a year, the tribute payments, the tax payments that come in from all the corners of the empire go into Tenochtitlan. And Texcoco only gets its sort of share of that after that. So um, there's also in Texcoco been a power struggle going on between brothers because their father, who was the, the ruler of Texcoco, had died in 1515. So four years before the Spaniards arrive. And there's a power struggle going on among those brothers that gets exacerbated by the invasion. So here come the Spaniards. They have no idea where they are. They have no idea what's going on. There's very complex political terrain with multiple conflicts. And all of these indigenous actors and leaders see the Spaniards as an opportunity for them to change things, to take control and so on. So who's really in charge of the war? No one is. No one is in charge. It's It, it goes on for two and a half years, is incredibly bloody. There's a massive, massive mortality rate because nobody is in nobody is in charge. And and the the idea that at the end of it the Spaniards win and they're the victors is not at all obvious at the end of the war. What is obvious at the end of the war is that the Mexica control of the empire um has been destroyed, but it looks as if instead. Um, we have two other kind of imperial entities. Tlaxcala has come out very nicely and now appears to have its own kind of little mini empire in its valley. And then that city of Texcoco, the number two city, appears to now be the number one city. And they appear to have sort of changed that balance of power. It's only as a result of what happens in the decades following that, that, it, that we can begin to see that that the momentum is going to be in the favor of the of the Spaniards who are coming constantly over in greater, greater numbers um, and are able to reconstruct the Aztec Empire and and expand the Aztec Empire, but with them in a position of, of power and authority at the top. So we no longer call it the, the Aztec Empire. Now we're calling it the Kingdom of, of New Spain. That's a long, that's the long kind of lecture on it, but hopefully you can see that um, there's a very different way of looking at it from the traditional view, right? And someone you have to mention as well, of course, and I'm the, and she is quite a controversial figure, and I'm sure you know already what I'm talking about is uh, a woman called, I'm sorry if I say her name wrong, Marcellin, who become, uh, who meet Cortez, and of course here is heavily relied on her because she speaks the Aztec language as well, and used she learned Spanish enough so she can be a translator. So how how does she come about to meet Cortes and how she worked for Cortes? Because I believe that most Mexicans today, they look at her as a traitor. I don't know how controversial she is today, mm-hmm. but, you know, she used to be quite a controversial figure. At yeah, least. I mean, this is a... It's, it's a story so much about men, right? It's all, you know, when we, when most of the time when we're talking about, and as I was just talking about it then, it's like, it's all about men. It's all about men fighting. Um, it's a very kind of, it's a very male 
story. It's sort of soaked in testosterone. You know, where are the women in this? You know, very often the only woman who ever gets mentioned is um, Doña Marina. She has multiple names because we don't know what her indigenous name was. Sometimes there's people will say the wrong thing. There's wrong sort of stories about how she was really called this or that in, mm-hmm. in Noah. But, um, and it's unfortunate because she has kind of gone down in history as being the only woman who really appears in the story. And she goes down as being classified as being Cortez's mistress, yeah. right? Which is a really kind of problematic category. Um, it's the actual story is a lot darker than that. So I mentioned earlier that there were tens of thousands of um, children, including young girls who were being enslaved and sold um, as sex slaves. And um, part of that story is that often um, indigenous community leaders, who of course themselves were men, in order to, in in their negotiations with Spanish uh, invading conquistador companies, you know, relatively small numbers, you know, might be some dozen here, maybe a hundred or so there, they have to deal with these people. And the idea is, is to get rid of them, right? So you've got a Cortez's company that's actually um, fairly large, you know, 400, 400 and something men going down the coast and they land on the coast of what Mexico sort of near the border between um, Maya speaking kingdoms and Nahuatl speaking kingdoms. Um, So kind of on the edge of the Aztec empire. And there's a Maya community there that has to deal with these, these guys. Uh, You can fight them. That, you know, risks a great deal. You you risk your community considerably, or you can negotiate with them. And these community leaders, usually what they do is they sort of test the Spaniards with some, with a little, uh, you know, violence, a little resistance. And then they realize, oh, well, these guys have got um, steel swords, which are hard to hard to fight against. They have mm-hmm. a little bit of a military advantage. Not It's not as great as, as is often um, argued, right? You can't mm-hmm. conquer empires just because you have steel swords. The horses don't do you much good. The guns are pretty much totally useless. Um, that's a whole kind of red herring. So what you do is you then negotiate. And what do the Spaniards really want? Well, they don't want you. They, they're they on their way to find El Dorado, right? They've got this yeah. idea that somewhere there's this huge city of gold and there's a source of great wealth and mineral wealth and, you know, um, you know, millions of slaves that can be taken and the whole thing. So what you do is you provide them with supplies and send them on their way. You you maybe a couple of, couple of you send some men to be uh, interpreters, but who are also going to act as spies. Um, and then you give this them women. This is Pizarro, right? This is Pizarro who goes. Pizarro does the same thing. I mean, it's exactly the same. And all, whether we're talking about, you know, the Cortez expedition, the Pizarro expedition in South America, um, you know, Jimenez de Quesada in Colombia, wherever we are, it's the same kind of thing. Um, and then the, they're given some women and those women are there um, to, you know, be camp followers, to like, you know, cook, take care of the Spaniards and so on. And they're young and they're to be sex slaves as well. And then they're going to be sold and, and so on. It's very, it's a very kind of dark side to this story that is, you don't, you you don't see it in the, in the, um, in the traditional narrative. So 
Doña Marina, as she becomes known, she she's given is 12 years old. Maybe she's 13. It's pretty it's best as we can tell. She's 12 years old. She's part of a group of 20 girls about the same age that are given to the Spaniards. So she's not Cortez's mistress, right? Yeah. She's she's a child who is in who is then forced into sexual slavery. It's a very dark, dark story. Now, she happens to be a Nahuatl speaker. And ethnically, she's a Nahuatl and she has um, been enslaved in the Maya area before Spaniards arrived because there's slavery in Mesoamerica just as there is any everywhere else in the world in the 16th century. Um, so she speaks both languages. She speaks some Maya and she speaks some Nahuatl. One of the Spaniards had him been shipwrecked in the Yucatan years earlier and had then been rescued and had learned some, some Maya, Yucatec Maya this is. Um, so therefore there's this kind of game of... Uh, um, you know, sort of telephone, as it were, right? Where um, Cortez speaks Spanish to the Spaniard Jerónimo de Aguilar, who then speaks it, translates it to Maya. The Maya is translated into Nahuatl, and then um, Marina becomes known as Doña Marina because she acquires status. Yeah. She then can then speak to Aztec amb- ambassadors, but she very quickly learns some Spanish, so she becomes really an, an important figure as an interpreter. Um, does she have? any kind of other relationship with Cortez. Look, the only evidence of that is the fact that nine months after she ceases to be useful as an interpreter because Tenochtitlan falls to the siege at the end of the war, nine months after that, she gives birth to Cortez's child. So you can interpret that how you, how you like. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence that they have any kind of romantic relationship before that at all. Um, there is evidence that Cortez um, had the habit of um, raping indigenous women when he could, particularly women of status. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly, there's a couple of members of the Montezuma royal family, those women um, who were treated that way by Cortez. There's evidence of that. So I think it's pretty clear, actually, you know, what happened. Uh She's a complex figure and I think a misunderstood figure. And the idea that, um, you know, she's a romantic interest is totally wrong. The idea that she's a, a, a traitor is completely wrong. I mean, these are kind of actually horrific things to say about somebody who um, is placed in, in that impossible situation and struggles to survive. I mean, what, 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 what would you have done, right? What would you have done in that situation if they came to you? Exactly. Exactly. She's she's a, she's placed in an impossible situation, and she's a survivor, and she's obviously somebody that has um, intellectual abilities and talents which are recognized by the Spaniards, and that's why you know she gets given the title of Doña. That is not something that is casually given in 16th century. The dons and Donas. That is you know today in the Spanish speaking world, that's just a mark of respect. You know, you might refer to anybody with those titles to start, you know, to just to be polite and to be respectful to them. Back then, that is something that is earned and is a sign of you achieving um, considerable rank and status, if not actually rank of nobility. Um, and so, you know, we I think she's somebody who kind of deserves our, our respect for that. And also, I think she's somebody who is a good way for us to start thinking about the role of women in, mm-hmm. um, in warfare. 
and and you know not just her but others as well and and surviving um women in the in the in the Aztec or the Montezuma royal family and how they survive the war afterwards um or the aftermath of the war and how they survive marrying into um Spanish conquistador society and and so on again these are kind of survival strategies so have we got to... we got off track here or not yeah uh, no, I don't think so, but uh, let's talk about the fall of the Aztec Empire, because they almost do win the battle of the the, the Alliance Cortistadors, because Cortes almost loses, and he, but it does turn the tide. He's lucky, and but they almost lose. At least the first battle, it's almost a victory for the Aztec, isn't it? Yes, so the, the, the war is... The invasion war is two and a half years, right? The Spaniards yeah. arrive on the beaches in April of 1519, and then Tenochtitlan falls in in August. And, um, you know, like like any war that lasts for several years, it it it's it's complicated and tends to be told in an overly simplified way, right? And it also tends to be overshadowed by the end result. So whatever war it is, we tend to see. Everything during that war is inevitably leading up to, you know, the end, whoever, whoever triumphs at the end. Um, uh, and part of the complication of that is uh, what happens in November of 1519. So the Spaniards have arrived in April. Um, there's a complex set of events that take place leading up to November when a small group of Spaniards arrive um uh, outside Tenochtitlan, the Spanish, um, the sorry, the Aztec capital, uh, and that's where the title of my book comes from. When Montezuma met Cortez, mm. so what I'm what I'm arguing in that book is that um, this is kind of this pivotal moment that the Spaniards later claim was an was a, an act of surrender. They claim that Montezuma came out, met Cortez at the at the gates to the city, and surrendered gave him the city and that that's why the Spaniards were able to enter the city and they're in that city from November all the way through to the following summer of 1520 right so now we're sort of halfway through this two and a half year period um and they argue that uh bad Aztecs don't like the fact that Montezuma has surrendered and they rise up and kill Montezuma and drive the Spaniards out. Um, and that the Spaniards then have to kind of regroup and come back and then reconquer or claim what is rightfully theirs. Um, yeah, it makes no sense. It's clearly, it's not what happened. It makes no sense. It's kind of a, a fantasy way of looking at events, but it's what Cortes writes down and sends to Spain in the middle. So before the war is even over, um, Spaniards are reading about this 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 alleged surrender that took place mm. in November of 1519. In fact, Montezuma is not surrendering. He's welcoming these visitors. He's in control of an empire of millions of people. It's a few hundred visitors. He's welcoming them in. And rather than him being a prisoner of them and them controlling, they are prisoners of his. Or as mm. much prisoners as guests, right? They're allowed to come and mm. go as they wish. Um, he does not see them as a huge threat, uh, and they don't appear to be a huge threat at that point. Mm. They're very, they're very few in number, 
Um, and there's a really fascinating period. Um, I think if I, I think it's 235 days, um, uh, which sort of sticks in my mind because uh, I write about it in the book. And I think at one point I was, I have a chapter called 235 days or something. Because it seemed like a really interesting core period to me that is poorly understood and not much is written about. So the, mm. You know, you would think if the Spaniards were really controlling the empire during that time period um, and controlling Montezuma, there would be a lot of documentation written about it. Of course, there isn't because they're not, right? They're essentially um, being held as sort of prisoners slash guests mm. within within the city. How does it all go wrong? Um, it goes wrong because more Spaniards come from Cuba mm. and they arrive on the coast. Um, who are those Spaniards? Well, you mentioned earlier that co- what Cortes had done was was illegal according to the Spanish kind of system yeah. of licensing and so on. So yes, the governor of Cuba um, has found out what's happened. He also has found out that... Um, this group of Spaniards is always credited to Cortez. So I'm saying the kind of the group of captains has sent one of their own back to Spain to argue for a license that would be in Cortez's name. He knows this because this particular Spaniard stopped in Cuba on the way back. Um, so he said, okay, governor of Cuba says, I'm going to put together an even bigger um, company of men, about 1100. And we're going to send them. We're going to arrest Cortez and we're going to complete the conquest in his name. Right. So the company of Spaniards is just a, a, you know, a few hundred of them at this point that's been in Tenochtitlan living very well, right? They're not being mistreated as, as prisoners. They're, they're guests living very well. I mean, there are descriptions of them, like, you know, going out hunting with Montezuma and his entourage and um, being well fed and, you know, being touring the city and all of this. So, Part of them march back down to the coast to meet the Spaniards who are arriving. Cortes will later talk about that as this great victory on his part and so on. But um, essentially what happens is the uh, the, the uh, arriving Spaniards talk to those who've been in the city and those in the city say, um, this is an incredibly wealthy, huge empire. Um, come with us. Let's all go back together. Right. Mm-hmm. But there's a minimal amount of of conflict um, and they all kind of march back together. But those who are left in the city are very few in numbers, a hundred and something. Um, and they get nervous. Um, they uh, are, are afraid that they're going to be slaughtered. Um, it's been six months. Um, they are not in charge. Um, you know, the question of whether they are guests or whether they are prisoners is, uh, you know, it's a little bit kind of ambiguous. And they see that there's a one of the Aztec festivals of which they have monthly festivals, big festivals that are celebrated in the center of the city and involve music and dancing. Sometimes there are ritual executions of people, you know, four times a year tribute comes into the city and so on. They see a festival being prepared. Um, there's drumming. There are people in costumes and so on. And they lose their nerve and run out of the palace where they're staying on the central square as guests of Montezuma. It's his father's old palace. And they start um, killing the musicians, cutting the arms off the drummers and so on, afraid that there's going to be a massacre. Well, that's the end of the peaceful arrangement. 
right? The Aztecs quite rightly are furious and they try and kill the Spaniards. The Spaniards retreat back into the palace and they are therefore kind of under siege in there. And there's kind of a standoff. Then who shows up? A large force of, you know, well over a thousand Spaniards who've marched up from the, the coast who are allowed to march back in, into the into the palace. Um, they have with them other indigenous peoples, uh, Tlaxcalans and Totonacs and others. There's a large force come into the palace. And with this standoff gets kind of complicated and very quickly kind of breaks down into violence, where the Spaniards are essentially besieged by Aztec forces all around the palace. Um, and they break out in the middle of the night. Um, most of them are killed. The Spaniards call it the tragic night, La Noche Triste. Um, and they escape. And uh, that then becomes later um, described as what, the, you know, the, the incident that you kind of referred to earlier, Erland, is like, oh, well, mm-hmm. it's like they all, you know, they lost the war. <laughs> it mm-hmm. seemed like they gained the city and then they lost the city. They actually had never gained the city. Um, they were guests and then they became violent. And so they were expelled <laughs> and the Aztecs tried to kill them. Um and those 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 surviving Spaniards from from that incident then are part of the force that comes back, and they spend a year then besieging, gradually implementing a, a siege, in which Texcoco, that number two city on the banks of the lake that I mentioned earlier, takes the leading role. So, our idea that this is the Spaniards besieging the Aztecs is totally wrong. It is the number two city in the empire, then taking a, a position of hostility against the number one city. So the city on the bank of the lake, on the shores of the lake, then surrounds and besieges the city that's on the island in the middle of the lake. And those besieging forces attacking Tenochtitlan, well over 90%, perhaps 95 or more percent of those besieging forces are indigenous. They are not Spanish. The Spaniards are a tiny of us, a few percentage of those of those attackers. Now, something I wanted to talk about as well is that, and I don't know if this is a overstatement, because as you know, the Aztec Empire did have quite a lot of gold, and of course, the Spaniards want that gold, don't they? But was is it as historians claim that gold had not really no value? But it seemed to me that it must have been some value in the gold because you know they since that considering how much the Aztecs had how much gold the Aztecs actually had this must have been some kind of value to them right this could not be just it looks nice let's get some of that you know yeah I mean there's there's gold there's gold and silver in Mexico that the Spaniards are you know are going to be mining it during the colonial period and the and the Aztecs um you know they had gold and silver objects right they they understood that gold and silver it doesn't it doesn't have the same value to them as it did to europeans because they did not have a monetary system that was based on precious metals but like the incas they understood um you know gold and silver as being metals that could be worked um into you know various kinds of ornaments right um and so yeah they had they had they had gold and and the spaniards are you know making it clear to the Aztecs. So we're not so interested in your jade and your feather work and other things that matter to you. We're particularly interested in gold and silver. So it is being acquired and shipped back to Spain. Um, Cortes, however, greatly exaggerates how much gold there is 
during the course um, of his campaign to get the king of Spain to give him the license. So as part of his campaign is, look, forget the governor of Cuba. He doesn't know anything. He hasn't even been here. I'm here. And here's an ex- here's just a small example of the wealth that is in this in this empire that I can get for you. Give me the license and there'll be so much more gold coming. So in order to make that case, he exaggerates. Now, after the, the fall of Tenochtitlan and the Spaniards then begin to, you know, establish their colonial province in 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 what they call Mexico City, where is all that extra gold? It isn't there. There is some, but there isn't what Cortez claimed there is. And so then this myth then develops of the missing treasure, Montezuma's missing treasure. And the Spaniards also don't understand. They think there's more as well. So they start accusing each other, suing each other. There is there's some violence. That story really gets traction and it continues all the way up to the present. I um I just was uh one of the talking heads on uh was it history's greatest mysteries, I think. Um one of those kinds of uh television shows on the history channel uh about Montezuma's missing treasure. Um of course it's history channel. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't I, I don't think it's aired yet. And so I don't know how much they liked what I was saying, which is there was no such thing. Right. That just doesn't go down very well. Saying mm-hmm. you can do a whole television show about Montezuma's missing treasure, but um in my opinion, there was no there was no missing treasure. There never was. Um, you know, it's never going to be found. And here are the reasons why the myth developed, right? Which is what I was mm-hmm. just kind of explaining. I mean, you, you you know, I know you're interested in what happens in the Inca Empire as well. And the, and the Incas, um, they have a lot more gold and silver. And they um, imbue gold and silver with more kind of a, a of more sacrality. There's more of a sacred association, right? Gold associated with the sun, uh, silver associated with the moon. There's a moon and there's a moon deity and a sun deity and so on. So, um uh Pizarro and his fellow conquistadors when they enter the Inca empire um they discover that there's an enormous amount of that kind of wealth far more than was available to the Spaniards um when they were attacking the Inca empire and um, the, the Aztec empire of course if we go fast forward through the subsequent centuries there's an enormous amount of silver is found in northern mexico in the mines there but that's not that's not known in the early 16th century. I want to go into the Incas in a second, of course, but the first I want to talk about the fate of uh, Moctezuma's family and Moctezuma himself after the siege of uh, of the city. I don't want to say the city's names right now because I'm scared I'm going to say, say the name wrong, so I'm just talking about the fate of uh, Moctezuma after the siege. Um... Right. So what happens to him? So uh, he's killed. Right. Yeah. And so the, then there's a sort of a murder. But isn't, isn't he in the whole held prisoner first in a month of days yeah. as well? So during the um, right before the, the Noche Triste, mm. as the Spaniards call it, right before that moment where the, the Spaniards escape in the middle of the night in the rain because they're being besieged within that palace. At some point before that, they um, are able to take prisoner, not just Montezuma, but um, uh, a, a group of indigenous leaders, Nahua leaders of of not just of 
um, Tenochtitlan, but also the sister city of Tlatelolco and some of the other important cities around the uh, around the basin. The Spanish will later claim that they had taken these 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 prisoners had been taken much earlier because that's how they were able to rule the empire. But um, uh, that's clearly not true, and the evidence does not support that. What it looks like is if they actually took them prisoner only at that moment um, in a matter of weeks before their escape uh, when they start to become besieged. So more likely um, there's, this, there's this sort of violence breaks out and Montezuma now has a relationship with these captains because they've been there for six months and him and the other leaders go to talk to them saying, let's try and, you know, uh, figure out what we can do here to prevent this violence. And the Spaniards just grab them and hold them as prisoner. And then right before they escape, they kill them. And they admit that the other um, Aztec leaders are just, just kind of stabbed to death in cold blood. But then they make up this story about Montezuma. That they say that he goes out onto the balcony to plead to the other Aztecs to stop attacking the Spaniards and that the Aztecs throw arrows and stones at him and that kills him. Um, so it's possible that he he goes out and makes a speech and, and he gets hit by stones or whatever, but um, it seems really unlikely that those would have been fatal wounds. And, you know, I I set out to kind of, form an opinion on what happened with an open mind mm-hmm. um in my book there i start one of the chapters like this is a murder mystery who killed montezuma i'm not trying to set out here to prove it was done by the spaniards or the aztecs i'm really curious as to see where the evidence leads me um and at the end i came to a really strong conclusion it's like it just seems really clear to me and i have no doubt that he was just he would have been stabbed to death by the spaniards when they stabbed it the others on their way out of this out of the city so he kind of dies an ignominious death um and then afterwards they put out this um the story about how he was actually killed by his own people which helps to kind of it helped to shore up this 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 idea that he had actually surrendered to them right because if he had surrendered to them and was cooperating then why would they kill him it doesn't make any sense right now you mentioned the speech, and I remember that there there is two versions of the speech, but they seem to kind of go and go go coincide with each other because you know the Aztecs have one version of Montezuma's speech. I think when they start to write their own history and then get literate, and and you know the Spaniards also have some version of the speech, and it is debated which one is real, but it mm-hmm. is written by Spaniards who sorry Aztecs who were were there at the time and it's but then but there is two versions of Montezuma's speech if I remember correctly. Yeah. So the the version that's written down in Nawa um is actually written down uh, a couple of generations later. So it's not written down at the time. Okay, right. right. And so it's very misleading and often it is, you know, um you see in whatever textbooks and things like that that someone has accessed that Nahuatl version, which is very easy to find now because it's in it's in a document, in a book written by a Franciscan friar called um, Bernardino de Sahagún, and the book is called The General History of the Things of New Spain. But it is known to us as the Florentine Codex because it ends up, the manuscript ends up in Florence, 
in Florence in Italy. It doesn't, the reason why it doesn't, it's not important. So it gets called the Florentine Codex, which is, I always object to that name. It's incredibly misleading because it gives the impression that it is um, an indigenous codex, like a Maya codex or an Aztec codex or something, right? As opposed to a, a document that was generated and created by Franciscan friars in two different languages, as a Spanish text and an and a Nahuatl text. There's also illustrations. It's created over the period of several decades. Um, and yes, there is in that there is the speech in Spanish, and then it's in Nahuatl as well. But the thing is, is it's essentially a Nahuatl version of the speech that was written down by Ooh. Cortez, um, you know, half a century earlier. Um, so Cortez, Cortez sort of either invents the speech or it's a version of the speech of welcome that was given by Montezuma, right? So there's kind of two ways we can see it. One, we can see he wants to believe that the Spaniards, the captains want to believe that Montezuma surrendered. That really serves their purpose. So he just made up a surrender speech. That's one, one kind of that's a sort of simple interpretation. Another one is, uh, well, Montezuma would have made a speech of some kind when he welcomed them. This was a diplomatic encounter. There was no violence. There clearly were speeches. Then the Spaniards then came in and were put up in the show where their quarters were in Montezuma's father's palace, which is right next to Montezuma's palace as his guest. So there would have been a speech. Let's try and figure out what that speech might have looked like by looking at the evidence of um, of the Nawa culture of formal address and so on. Do we know anything about that? Well, we do, because in the in the decades after the Spaniards sort of started to create their colony, um, there was a great deal of discussion and writing down of things and so on between Franciscan friars and Nawa elders, right? The survivors of the war. And the Franciscans wanted to know all about this culture so that they could Christianize it. They, they, they believed quite rightly that the better they understood the culture, um, the more thoroughly they could, you could say, destroy it, if you want to look at it that way, but certainly transform it into a Christian one. Um, and a lot of that stuff was written down. Of course, you say, you know, Francisca's like, well, we write down, this is how, um, you know, a, an Aztec nobleman was supposed to speak, talk to his father. This is how you're supposed to address the emperor. This is how women are supposed to address men. All of that was written down so that when subsequent Franciscan friars and other Spanish priests, Dominicans, Augustinians, secular clergy came in, they would be able to read this and better understand um, how to convert indigenous peoples and how to kind of maintain them as, as good Christians. So we go back and we look at those texts which have survived. We can see that there's a certain culture of address in which when you're being polite, you use inversions. So you, if you are a nobleman, you would say, I'm just your humble child. In fact, the Nawa word for nobleman, Pili, and the Nawa word for child are related. They're, they're just variants on the same term, right? So if he was, Montezuma was what we believe him to be, um, you know, powerful, respected uh, emperor, um, how, what would have been the polite way that he would have addressed a visitor? He would have not said, get down on your knees and grovel, right? I'm the, I'm the supreme emperor here. That would have been rude. 
the polite way of women, he would have said, you are welcome in, in my, in my home. This is your home. This is your city. Um, you know, I'm at your service, all of that kind of stuff. I mean, it's easy for us to understand because we actually have a kind of a similar culture of politeness, right? Mm-hmm. Just to think about somebody coming as a guest in your home, Erland, you're not going to say, mm-hmm. this is my home castle. You better treat me with respect. Right. Yeah. You know, you're going to say, please mm-hmm. make yourself at home. It's your, treat it like it's your house, anything you need, you know, and so on. And that's, that is what Montez, we can reasonably assume what Montezuma would have said, we can even come up with, you know, we can see some of the phrases that he would have used in Nahua and so on. So now the Spaniards are hearing this speech and they're then trying to kind of interpret and understand what it means. It's very, it's it's very easy for them to say, well, he said, this is our city, right? I mean, so he probably was surrendering. So I, I think it's a mixture of pure invention and a mixture of kind of willful misinterpretation, where it's kind of wishful thinking. It's like they could, there seems to be the, some phrases they could take and they could kind of turn around and make them seem as if he was surrendering and that kind of serves their purpose and so on. And I, and I think that as time goes by during the course of the war, a lot of the Spanish genuine, genuinely believed that that Montezuma had surrendered, that they had lost the city, that it was rightfully theirs, Um, And that what they were doing and trying to reclaim it was, you know, was totally justified. And of course, after the war, you know, this isn't this isn't a conspiracy of belief. You know, don't tell anybody that it was (laughs) that he didn't surrender. I think people actually believe it. Um, I'll say one other thing. There's a really revealing moment that I found buried in one of the manuscripts written by Bartolome de las Casas, um, uh, in which he describes going to Mexico City not long after the war was over and having uh, a dinner and that Cortez was at the dinner and he confronts Cortez and says, this is a lie. You know, he, you know, Montezuma didn't surrender. He didn't give you, you just took it. Mm. You took it. It's just an act of like, you know, just bold, like, you know, unjustified, immoral seizure of somebody else's. And and then Martome de Casas says, Cortez just smiles at him and says, hey, at least I came in through the front door. You know, mm. I, didn't, I didn't come in through the back and, and take the house. Right. I just came right in, honestly, through the front door and says, I'm taking it. And, and you know, Las Casas is like kind of, you know, shocked. Um, now, why does everybody not know about that? As you know, Las Casas wrote it down in a, in the manuscripts, I actually don't remember now whether it was one of his, I think it was in Latin, it wasn't published for, for hundreds of years, you know, but that, that to my mind was this kind of little, I found, I felt like that was almost kind of like a little smoking gun bit of evidence. Like Las Casas is somebody whose, you know, opinion and judgment I trust. I read a lot of his writings and he was kind of an extraordinary figure and then it, and it really rings true as a real kind of little fly on the wall moment, right? We can imagine this kind of this kind of conversation. And say, okay, so some people are saying, yeah, this surrender idea was not, was not really what happened, you know. But um, you know, it works as kind of you know the official you know the official viewpoint. Mm. And of course, we are... don't. And I think we're going to leave the Aztecs for now because we have to talk about the Incas as well, of course, and. The gentleman, the producer, or not maybe not gentleman, but that and that is more sarcastic. But you know, 
Francisco Pizarro, who is playing quite a large part in the conquest of the Inca. But we should, of course, address as well that Inca wasn't necessarily the, the empire that we think about as Inca. They were, the Inca was more than the title of the emperor of, of the, his people. It wasn't the entire empire that was called the Incas. That, that came later, but that for them, the Inca was the title for the em- emperor. Right. The Inca was not, they, the Incas did not call their empire the Inca empire. <laughs> they called their ruler, they called their emperor was the, was the Inca. That's absolutely right. Um, now Pizarro um, is, is, is attempting to emulate what Cortes does yeah. because it's 10 years later. Right. So um, uh, the, the kind of the, the Cortesian view of the so-called conquest of Mexico um is very well known um and that that what what i'm kind of challenging is the traditional narrative is kind of a, is pretty well established then in the 1530s and it, it, pizarro is also doing what spanish conquistadors generally have tried to do which is to find the ruler and take the ruler captive and it's what they were doing in the caribbean um, it actually is kind of a is part of the playbook that goes all the way back to when Christian kingdoms were battling Muslim kingdoms in Iberia. It's the same thing. You got to you got to capture the leader of the of the of the enemy, and you know you negotiate, you ransom him off. Uh, if net, you know if you if it's to your advantage to to murder him, you do that. Uh, you know whatever it is, um, and so that's what Pizarro is trying to do, and is able to do that when he seizes Atahualpa, who was the Inca at the time. Um, but he also has the advantage of the fact that Atahualpa is, is is competing with his brother to take control of the empire, which is itself probably a result of European invasion because their father had died um, a few years earlier. I possibly, probably, I think um, the evidence is pretty strong. He probably died of smallpox. That, in other words, the diseases that were brought by Spaniards um, and and um, enslaved Africans who came with them, people from the old world, right, brought diseases, and those diseases spread more rapidly than humans could. So there was probably a wave, pretty good evidence. There was a wave of smallpox and maybe some other diseases worked their way down through South America before Spaniards physically are even making their way down there. So. Um, as you know, we can't be for sure, but I think it's fairly convincing to me anyway, that, um, Atahualpa and his brother Huascar's father died of smallpox, um, and his death was sudden and creates kind of a, um, a, a dispute over who's going to take over. And they kind of divide the empire into two halves very loosely, um, North well, and kind South. Of, kind of a more succession in a sense. Succession dispute. Yeah. I mean, it's not. It's it's still underway, right? There isn't like they come to an agreement. You take the north, you t- I take the south. There's it's they're like still like in North and South Korea in, after the Second World War. Yeah, um, maybe kind of. Like, <laughs> yeah. I like I like the modern analogies, although they're always mm-hmm. like really problematic, right? But, yeah. but but yeah, we can go we can go with that, especially if we consider that that you know the, that that did North South Korea dispute is not over, right? No. Not like everybody's happy with the arrangement. Yeah. It's it's. It's gone on a surprisingly long period of time. This one may have gone on for a long time too, if it wasn't for the outside invaders um, who try to kind of play the two off against each other. Um, 
and the sort of instability of the of that moment in the Inca Empire gives the Spaniards kind of an opportunity to get in there. Um, and it, you know, the Spaniards like to like to then sort of portray their achievements as these kind of miracles that could only be done because they had God on their side, right? So a few hundred Spaniards taking, you know, Aztec Empire tens of millions. The Spaniards like to talk about the. You know, the men at Cajamarca in this northern Inca city, there were 168 Spaniards and they like to talk about them, you know, like conquering the Inca Empire. In fact, that war of invasion goes on for decades. And even in the middle of it, it even has a civil war between two factions of Spanish conquistadors, right, which sort of prolongs the process. And even at the end of it, there's still a a kind of a, a rump Inca Empire kingdom that exists up in the mountains up until uh, the 1570s. Um, so really, it's a it's a very long protracted process, um, and it ends only because, as in Mexico and as in elsewhere in the Americas, the local elite, the indigenous elite, um, negotiate an agreement with with Spaniards, whereby they are able to preserve some kind of um, uh, semblance of of local autonomy and rule. Um, you know, in, in in order to kind of accommodate the presence of Spaniards, mm-hmm. how could they possibly know that it's you know it's over hundreds of years that that the Spaniards are going to continue to be coming in, emigrating, mm-hmm. integrating you know these regions into like this new kind of Atlantic world um, economy, uh, which generates an enormous amount of wealth and power that only kind of consolidates. Uh, you know, Spanish authority, they can't possibly know that. They can't anticipate something like the transatlantic slave trade, for example, right? Which, you know, 10, 15 million Africans forced into slavery, generating enormous amount of wealth for European imperial powers. Uh, It's very easy for us to kind of look back and, and see it all as a kind of an inevitability. But for indigenous rulers, we can't judge them for coming to these accommodations uh, because it would be absolutely impossible for them to see what could have happened. No, nobody could have, you know, uh, predicted what, what could have happened. And uh, of course, and, and once again, we mentioned this el- earlier as gold is of course one aspect of why, why they come into the Inca world. And, uh, you know, the, even though they give the, give it to them, because in the Inca world as well, it isn't that important. To them the gold or silver but still they are treated appallingly by the european Span- spanish conquistadors being called dogs or you know worse and there is written first-hand accounts of this where they how appalling they were treated by the conquistadors when they still give them what they want but they're still subhuman to them yeah i mean so, sort of symbolized by you know that famous incident where Atahualpa is held prisoner and told that he'll be released if he fills these rooms with golds and silver, you know, up to a line that's drawn along the wall and um, in comes the precious metals and he, he, you know, meets the the ransom amount and then he's murdered anyway, right? Mm. I I think that's that's famous particularly um, when Spain's enemies in Europe uh begin to write negatively about the Spanish empire because mm. <laughs> they're envious and they want to take the Spanish empire. Um, 
and they're kind of waging a propaganda war against the Spanish. What this, what Spanish historians in the turn of the 20th century will will call the Black Legend, in kind of protest. Um, but it's incidents like that that then get highlighted a great deal, and I think that's why they're kind of f- famous to us, right? Because it seems like look right. how dishonorable the Spaniards are. You know, this okay, this was an indigenous leader, but he was an you know an emperor and he behaved honorably and the Spaniards behaved dishonorably and so on. So yes, that is all true. However, do you imagine um, you know, English or French imperial authorities behaving any differently? Absolutely not. Of course, you know, it's about it's it's all about empire. I mean, if you look at India, it's uh, no better there. India's kind of speak for for itself. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, uh, and uh, I don't think any any historians, any English historians, or historians of any nationality today, um, you know, would would claim that old fashioned argument that you know one European power was mm-hmm. did imperialism in a in a better way than another, right, or anything like that. I, you know, I yeah. think that it's pretty clear that European empires. Um, it's appalling. Terrible things. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. There's a lot of argument about that. I'm I'm working right now on a, on a, a book about Christopher Columbus. Mm. That is not just a book about Columbus in his lifetime. It's mostly about how Columbus has been perceived since then, right. and how you know there's a kind of part of the culture war if you like as it's called in the united states you know today is um where where columbus and where the things that we've been talking about um today kind of tap into that is uh is just was there anything good that comes out of european colonialism in the americas and of course there's that argument well yeah of course the united states yeah. <laughs> right the land of yeah. you know land of freedom and democracy comes out of honest and therefore you can't condemn well, your one can argue them, hand. one can argue about the amount of freedom but that's a whole other episode for later right right it's a, <laughs> it's a kind of a, it, it, it's a there's all kinds of historical problems in yeah. kind of making those kinds of connections but uh if we just don't do that and we don't start talking about you know, United States in the 21st century, and we just look at what happens in the 16th century, then it isn't about condemning, um, you know, the Spaniards or con- or trying to rehabilitate the Aztecs and so on, even right. though that's a lot of what I've been talking about. It's about empire. Empire is violent. Mm-hmm. Empire is about conquest. Empire just, you know, it's really hard to make the, the case that um empires you know it's all all the millions of people that are enslaved and slaughtered and so on those are that's just collateral damage for empire which ultimately is a good thing it's hard to make that case and i would argue that um it's it isn't about individual peoples we can't blame nations uh or civilizations that ultimately is it comes down to a kind of a racist position that it's about empire Mm. Um, and that any peoples will behave atrociously and treat other peoples terribly. If you um, recruit them into an Imperial agenda and an Imperial Mm. mission, bad things are going to happen. It's like, you know, the parallel that I do talk about, which I realize is a, you know, puts me on kind of shaky ground is talk about what's going on today. Where in the world is somebody invading somebody else? Well, yeah. you know, Russia invaded Ukraine. So um, 
Because you just see how when you see the news, how appalling the troops treat the, the, the occupied areas of Ukraine, and you see that the, the it is it is appalling how the Russians yeah. treat still right. today in twenty twenty three. Right, we're talking about. But you know, so I you know I say to students like, does a Russians there a Russians therefore bad people? No. They're not bad mm. people. You can't you can't make it sort of nationalistic right. or racist like that. It's like you no, know, you can't condemn the Russian people. That's totally mm. wrong. Um, it's about empire. It's yeah. that it's an act of of imperial aggression has taken place, and that that is inherently violent and results in the kinds of things that you know the the stories that we've been hearing of you know massacres of civilians and and rapes and things like that and torture. That's what happens when the Spaniards invade the Aztecs. And mm. you know what? That that's also what happened when the Aztecs were creating their in- empire mm. or the Inca were creating their empire mm. because empire is inherently violent. And that's I I always think that's the important thing to remember and emphasize here that we are studying empires and the impact that empires have. We're not looking mm. to, you know, to attack or defend a particular kind of peoples or nations. Mm. That's, of course, you have to go back to the Incas now. And uh, something that I find is kind of genius is, of course, the Incas. They, <laughs> excuse me, they <laughs> they wanted, of course, the Spaniards to go away. So what did they do? They invent this myth that there is this goal. We mentioned El Dorado before, but they find a genius way to get them on the moving. And it says that, oh, there's a gold city of gold somewhere. Just go there and you find it, of course. Is the it's the you know, I mentioned but the, the Spaniards read they believe in this myth so they start to go to find the El Dorado so so and it's, it's kind of a genius way to to you know get them to go. Yeah, I I mean, and that 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 is that happens everywhere, right? That's how yeah. you sort of that's how you get rid of your that's how you get rid of your invaders. But of course, it's like a it's a it's a short term strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and when we talk about the Inca Empire and the the rivalry between Atahualpa and Huasca, um, they are understandably, you know, they're hoping that the arrival of the Spaniards, they can use that to their benefit. Mm. And they attempt to do that. And the Spaniards are trying to use that rivalry. But, you know, in the long run, um, it's it's not a good strategy uh, because they're always going to come back. But how are they yeah. going to know that? Right. How do they they can't possibly know how many Spaniards there are and that um, it's not even just about Spain. It's about, you know, European imperial expansion, that there's kind of a system (laughs) and which goes back hundreds of years. I know some of the scholarship now about um, the time period we're talking about, there's kind of a debate about how far back. uh, I suppose the debate's been going on for a while, but how far back you take this, do you? argue that european imperial expansion actually goes back to the early medieval period Mm. um and that it sort of begins with sort of like the you know the collapse of the roman empire and that europe europe is expanding um and then there's a kind of a, a a period of collapse with um in the late medieval period but then it picks back up again in the 15th century. And so things don't actually begin in 1492. They begin way before that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's this sort of constant yeah, uh, expansion that um, takes place over the course of thousands of years. Well, if we 
if we accept that argument and we look at it kind of in the big picture and then imagine you are an indigenous leader in Mexico or, or, or Peru, you have po- come possibly have any kind of sense of that process. Mm, yeah. Right. It isn't even just about, well, how far away is Spain and how many Spaniards are there and how many ships can they build and why are they going to come here? It's like, there's something larger that is going on. And of course, um, if, if something happens and the Spaniards don't make it, you know, let, let me, we can do this kind of historical counterfactual. What if, yeah. uh, you know, what if Columbus like, you know, he's got caught in a bad storm on his first voyage and never made the crossing. Um, what if, uh, you know, Cortez dies in the war? Uh, what he if, almost did, didn't he? Cortez he almost, almost did. There are many moments. Columbus almost died. Cortez almost died. Mm. Um, what I mean, if when Columbus came back and he goes to Portugal first, uh, somehow the Portuguese are able to, let's say the Portuguese kind of arrest him and find out where he's been and, and they, no one ever makes it back to Spain. And I mean, they almost didn't because, you know, there was almost a mutiny on Columbus' ship when it, when it sailed so that they almost never discovered the, the South American world as well. Yeah, there's many other things that could have happened. And how does that change what ends up happening? Mm. In the long run, it doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, it might be that, um, you know, more of Latin America is there are people who are speaking Portuguese um, than Spanish. Or maybe there's mm. more French or maybe English. You know, that the, we just take for granted, like North yeah. people speak English. Brazil, they speak Portuguese. Most of the other places they speak Spanish, Caribbean is more complicated. We just take it for granted. That's absolutely not an inevitability at all. You could very easily just change a few things and the different languages are spoken. But what does not change is Europeans coming to the Americas. Yeah. At that It's really hard to see that being any different. It, there might be a different year it begins and it might be different European powers in different places, but that really looks like it's an inevitable process that you can't change i could easily talk another hour about this and, and but unfortunately as i understand we are running out of time so before you go thank you so, so much for coming on the podcast it's been a pleasure to have you on do you have anything you want to promote any social media where people might find you or other links you wanted to put in the description and of course where people can find your book if they want to read the book which you absolutely should oh yeah um well, I have a website that's very easy to find, MatthewRestall.com. It needs it's in the process of being updated and so on. But hopefully if someone listens to this and they see my name and they go and they Google it and go to my site. Um but you if you put in my name and um wherever you like to buy books, you know, Amazon or wherever, um it should come up with a, a list of all the various books. Uh, and I write mostly about the topics we've been talking about today. I also write about Maya history and there's a bunch of books about Maya history and completely unrelated. I also write about pop music as well. And so there's Ooh. a couple of books in there too, but um, I doubt anyone who's listened to us talking for two hours about conquistadors <laughs> cares about a book I wrote about Elton John or something like that. <laughs> um, but anyway, you'll, you'll see those up there and I'm only mention it because sometimes I get, I got somebody emailing me saying, I bought you Montezuma met Cortez. Did you know that there's someone with the same name mm. who wrote a book about an Elton John album? <laughs> and that's and you said, in it. That's, 
Yeah. And I said, <laughs> well, that's me. And they were like, what? They couldn't believe. Like, how would that be possible? Yeah. Anyway, um, thank you for having me on your podcast. I can't believe that the time went by. We've been yeah. talking for a couple of hours. Un- unbelievable. Uh, we, we are available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you can find podcasts these days. If you are on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please consider writing a review of the podcast. That would help us a lot. If you are on YouTube, please like, share, and subscribe to the channel. My name is Alan. This has been Waldat H12, and I'll see you next time. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.